This is a reading from the book of Job, chapter 42, verses 10 through 17, found on page 447 of the Pew Bibles. Here are these words from the book that we love. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first order Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Liberty Northeast. You can all be seated. If you haven't met me yet or if you're new to Northeast, my name is Zach Palmer. Um, my wife Lizzie and I have been attending here for just over a year now. So we, we met in college back at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and we married last July. Went on our honeymoon, came back, got home at 9 o'clock at night. At 7 a.m., we loaded up our car, drove out to Langhorne, Pennsylvania, where we didn't know a single person. So uh, from the bottom of our hearts, we want to express our gratitude for how welcoming and grounding this community has been for us especially uh, the Levittown home meeting in the, in the nosebleeds over there. So currently, I am about halfway through my studies in seminary as I attend Southern Baptist Theological Seminary online. Um, in addition to that, I commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Army Reserves last year. So occasionally you look over and see that Lizzie and I aren't here on a Sunday morning. That's because I'm with Uncle Sam over at Fort Dix in New Jersey. Um, But needless to say, I'm very honored to step into this pulpit. I don't take it lightly. So would you guys join with me in prayer as we uh, ask that the Lord would meet us in this moment. Father, we come before you humbly. We come before you reverently. Lord, thankful that you have ordained this time, this moment, this Sunday for us to meet you, for your word to speak to us. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate the truths of your word in our hearts. Lord, you would, you would turn our hard hearts towards you. Any words that are not of you, may they wither away. And any words that of, are of you, may they stick and transform us, Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Martin Scorsese's 2010 film, Shutter Island, opens with a scene of a boat cruising off of the Boston Harbor on a foggy morning. Symbolically, the scene transitions under deck to a hazy, flustered federal marshal played by Leonardo DiCaprio. The audience learns that DiCaprio, a decorated army veteran, and his partner are headed to an asylum for the criminally insane that is located on a remote island off the coast in order to investigate the missing disappearance of a patient. While DiCaprio is investigating throughout the island, he eventually finds who he believes to be this missing patient. However, through conversations with her and through other patients, 
he uncovers that the staff and doctors at this ward are seemingly deceiving him to cover the fact that they are conducting heinous experiments on the patients. As the story unfolds, DiCaprio finds himself at the climatic moment of confronting the top doctor of the island. Shockingly, in a twist of events, the doctor reveals to DiCaprio that none of this is real. The formal federal marshal was actually a patient of the island in the midst of an elaborate role play. While DiCaprio was formerly a federal marshal, he had been sentenced to the island two years prior for a crime that he could not come to grips with. DiCaprio had been sentenced to Shutter Island for a murder that caused him to lose his mind. As DiCaprio met with doctors and psychiatrists for two years, his way of coming to grips with reality was the fact that he was still a federal marshal sent to the island to investigate. In a last-ditch effort for his sanity, the doctors secretly agreed to let DiCaprio play out this fantasy in hopes that he would come to grips with what he did. As you watch the movie back, the simulation that DiCaprio is in is evident. DiCaprio's federal, federal marshal name, Edward Daniels, is an anagram for his real name, Andrew Latis. The missing patient, Rachel Salando, her name is an anagram for her, his wife's name, Dolores Chanel. When DiCaprio arrives at the island, the prison guards are constantly on edge around him as, he, as they know that he is a decorated army veteran with free range, yet they are apathetic when they are searching for the patient because they know they are searching for someone who does not exist. The conversation that he had with other patients alluded to this role play scenario, yet he perceived these warnings as just cries for help. Watching this movie for the first time, this plot twist blindsides the audience. Following the grand reveal, naturally, we are left questioning everything. Is there really a chance that this was the plot the entire time? Could it all be true? However, if you go back and watch the movie for a second time, this time with the ending in mind, the audience is able to pick up on cues and question how they did not pick this up the entire time. Because all along, the director implanted blatant details, Easter eggs, and figures that revealed the truth to the audience, we just had to have the correct lens on in order to interpret them. The director impressed people, ideas, and messages in order for us to know the truth all along. We just had to pick these messages up. This is very similar to the biblical idea of typology. When you break the word down, you're left with two roots. Ology, a suffix we use all the time, meaning the study of, and type, coming from the root typus, meaning in the Latin, a form or image, and in the Greek, an impression. Similar to a typewriter, the goal of a typewriter is to leave impressions on a piece of paper for uh, a message to be picked up. So typology is a study of forms that leave an impression for the audience to pick up. So why are we talking about typology when the main focus of today is gospel centrality? In the Old Testament, God uses types of Christ in order for the audience to prefigure what is to come. To the biblically illiterate, the one who does not know how the story ends, one could read the story of Job and see an undeservedly suffering individual. To the biblically literate, the one who knows how the story ends, this individual sees an image of Christ in Job, a suffering servant who receives restoration in the end. 
Today, in order to supplement the end of this book, we're going to thematically work through the whole book of Job, understand how Christ is being foreshadowed, and then we're going to land the plane in the passage that we just read, Job's restoration. So although the book of Job is placed right before the book of Psalms in your, uh, in your Bibles, biblical criticism places the date of this book um, right before or during the time of Abraham. So the flood had already occurred, the Tower of Babel had already occurred, yet we are still pre-patriarch. That means that although Job was not an Israelite because God's covenant with Abraham had not yet been formed, he was still a God-fearer. He was a worshiper of Yahweh. As this book consists of 42 chapters, I'm going to attempt to give you a quick view from 30,000 feet just so we can see the typology throughout the book of Job. So at the beginning of the book of Job is a scene in heaven where Satan is before God. God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan immediately accuses Job, a righteous man, of fearing God only because God had prospered him. Strike everything he has, Satan says, and he will surely curse your face. God grants Satan limited permission to put Job to the test. Why do the righteous suffer? This is the question raised after Job loses his health, his family, his wealth. Job loses everything he has and has done nothing to deserve this. For the first two chapters of the book, Job still finds the strength to praise God. Yet in chapter 3, only a, a chapter later, Job's emotions come out as he laments his birth and the fact that he was ever born. Following the next 34 chapters, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come to comfort him and discuss his crushing series of tragedies. They know God is just and has ordered the world in fairness. So they insist that this punishment in his life is a punishment for sin. This discourse sees Job and his friends arguing back and forth about sin that he must have committed, yet Job maintains his innocence. Job teeter-tots between God's wisdom and justness, yet doubts God's goodness. At this point in time, Job demands God to reveal himself. A fourth man, Elihu, a type of forerunner of God, a type of Elijah, a type of John the Baptist, um, who prepares the way for the Lord, tells Job that he needs to humble himself and submit to the Lord. Submit to the God's use of trials to purify his life. So as God enters the scene, he pulls Job out of his context and brings him into the fullness of the universe. God does not reveal to Job the conversation that he had with Satan, but reveals the grandness, the splendor, and the intricacy of the world. God points out that Job does not understand the complexities of the universe in the ways that he does. Concluding, God reveals to Job of these two beasts that exist, how massive they are, how great they are, and how they could kill without any hesitation. Yet he does not consider these two beasts to be evil, but rather a part of his good, ordered world. And that concludes God's defense. God does not give Job a definitive answer for why the righteous suffer. However, he puts Job in his rightful place. So as Job is left questioning the goodness of God, he is left understanding that God's wisdom is infinitely greater. 
Yahweh is interacting with the complexities of the universe when he makes decisions. In light of this, Job requiring a defense from God is foolish. Job will never be able to understand the complexities of the universe. So this discourse leaves Job in a humbled state. He did not receive the answers for his suffering, yet he is rightly able to understand God and live at peace. In the end, all of Job's uh, fortunes are restored twofold, not because of his response to God, but because of God's mercy. And that's it. That's the, that's the five-minute Sparknote version of the full 42 chapters of the book of Job. And if we were to exegetically work throughout this book, we could pull out theological understandings that no one is righteous except for God, man's wisdom is insufficient, God's grand ultimate plan in life is, may have a purpose that we never understand. Um, but that being said, our focus on Our focus today is how the gospel is seen throughout the book of Job. How the book of Job is centered on gospel centrality. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point today. The righteous one. The book of Job opens up with a depiction of who this man is. Living in the land of Uz, Job is described as a man that was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job is unlike any of his contemporaries. He is truly a righteous man. His sins did not necessitate the destruction of his life, yet we are still reminded of the sins of his youth in chapter 13. Job was still born of the flesh. His righteousness was incomplete. We are reminded, however, of the righteous one who is to come. An image of Christ is already seen, the greater Job. Jesus lived a perfect life and is blameless and upright. He turned away from evil. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reveals that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Job's type of righteousness is a type of Christ's righteousness. Through Job, we are oriented towards the greater Job who is to come in fullness of righteousness to fulfill the law and prophets. Number two, the suffering servant. In chapters one and two, we not only see Job lose his property, but all of his children die. And on top of that, he has sores from the bottom of of his feet to the top of his head. On top of that, his contemporaries wrongfully accuse these atrocities as his fault. He was beaten down, he was scorned, And on top of that, he was mocked. An image of Christ is seen, the greater Job. As Job was a servant of the Lord, Christ was the perfect servant of the Lord, deserving not an ounce of suffering. That being said, Christ was accused by his contemporaries for crimes that he did not commit, for sins that he did not commit. Christ was beaten, he was scorned, and he was mocked, all undeservedly. The difference Christ suffered to the point of death in order for eternal restoration to occur. Job's suffering is a type of the suffering of Christ. Through Job, we are oriented towards the one who is to come, the greater Job. Point number three, God's transcendent plan. As Satan methodically plans to deceive Job away from worshiping Yahweh, God surprisingly grants this request. Satan seeks to bring death and destruction into the life of Job, thinking that this will bring glory to himself. 
an image of Christ is seen, the greater Job. While Satan worked throughout God's chosen people in order to bring death and destruction to the life of Christ, his plan was ultimately thwarted. For three days, it looked as though Satan had won. But God is sovereignly in control, and through that, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, conquering the punishment of sin. Satan's initial plan, what he thought to be his plan, brought reconciliation and restoration into the world. God's transcendent plan in the life of Job is a type of God's transcendent plan through Christ. Through Job, we are oriented towards the greater Job, who controls every intricacy of the universe for his glory. Point number four. In chapter four, verse eight, God rebukes Job's friends and requires them to go to Job, offering a burnt offering. Job will pray for them, and the Lord will hear his prayer. Only Job is able to intercede for his friends because they were not righteous. They needed someone to stand in between them and God. An image of Christ is seen, the greater Job. Christ is the definition of a mediator, being fully God and fully man. He is the only one who can eternally stand in between the two. Christ is our intercession. Through Christ, sacrifice is accepted. Through Christ, our prayer is heard. Job's intercession is a type of the full intercession of Christ. Through Job, we are reminded of the one who is to come and who intercedes on our behalf. Point number five. In chapter 42, we see that the Lord restored the fortune of Job twofold. While his first children were not brought back to him, he still received double the family, double the property, and double the possessions that he ever had. An image of Christ is seen, the greater Job. Not only did Christ overcome the grave, but he ascended to the right hand of God, the ultimate restoration. Because Christ has restored humanity and ascended, we can do the very same. We can now ascend to the heavenlies and exist with God for eternity. The earth will be destroyed, and a new Jerusalem, the perfect home, will be ushered in. Job's type of restoration is a type of the full restoration that is to come and that Christ brings. Through Job, we are oriented towards the one who is to come. Christ is woven through the book of Job, just as he is woven throughout the entire, New the entire Old Testament and New Testament, but Old Testament. In 21 BC, 2166 BC, Abraham is born, and Jesus is seen, as that, seen in that as God initiates a covenant with a people group, promising them land, people, and blessing. Abraham is the type of Christ that faithfully attempts to hold up our end of the covenant. A hundred years later, in 2066 BC, Jesus is seen through the birth of Isaac. The covenant of people is upheld, but God asks for the sacrifice of the son, foreshadowing the son who is to come to be the ultimate sacrifice. In 2006 BC, Jacob and Esau were born, continuing the blessing of people. Jacob deceives Esau, yet still the second born receives the blessing of God. 
Years later, Jacob repents for the sin as he contends with God, and he is given a new name, Israel. Jesus is seen in Israel as the chosen one from whom the nation of God's people would come. Following repentance, God gives us a new identity, a rebirth, a foreshadow of Christ is seen. God sends his people to Egypt in 1876 BC, and Jesus is seen in Joseph, as Jacob's son is attempted to be murdered for sins that he did not commit. Yet he lives and brings restoration to his people. In 1446 BC, Jesus is seen as Moses, the patriarch, delivers his people from their oppressing, ushering in the first of many exoduses. As Israel finally re-enters the land in 1406 BC, Christ is seen in Joshua, the leader who followed God's law and brought them back into covenant promise. From 1350 to 1051 BC, Christ is seen as the judges ruled imperfectly, but they represented the righteousness of Christ, and they were not without fault. God's people still yearned for another leader in 1051, so they chose to elect a king instead of looking to the perfect sovereignty of God. The kingship of Christ is foreshadowed. These kings ruled until the northern kingdom fell in 722 BC to the Assyrians, and in 586, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians, illuminating God's divine judgment that ungodliness cannot escape. The law is not fulfilled, righteousness has not come. In 538, the Israelites return to the land and the construction of the second temple begins. Ezra brings religious reform in 457 BC and Nehemiah returns, or rebuilds Jerusalem's walls in 445 BC. Restoration has come, but not in total fulfillment. Jesus is seen in Ezra and Nehemiah as they bring their people back into the land and usher in restoration. Now here is the pastoral safeguard. These prefigures are images of Christ, but they are incomplete. They are only meant for the reader to look forward to the one who is to come. 400 years later, Christ is born, fully God and fully man. For 33 years, God assumes our position in order that he may redeem it. In AD 33, Christ's salvific work is not inaugurated, but it is completed. He has lived in our place. He has died in our place. He has resurrected in our place, so that we might be glorified in his rightful place. So here it is. What does the truth of gospel centrality mean for us? Why is this a core value of our church? Contemporary Christians with access to the full canon of scripture are immeasurably blessed. We are able to re-watch the movie for the second time, but this time with the lens of a meta-narrative. The lens that Jesus Christ is the center of this book. God created us to rule with him. However, with the freedom that he entrusted us with, we dethroned him. Not only did Adam sin in the Garden of Eden, but so did we. This is a doctrine of original sin. We are born in a flesh that is enslaved to sin. However, this is not the end of the story. God still wanted to dwell with us, but only in partiality until the law could be fulfilled. 
We can only dwell with God in fullness when our flesh is redeemed and restored. This is what necessitated the work and the person of Christ. Christ accomplished what man could not as he stepped into our lowly place. And as we place faith in Christ, we are joined to all that he is and all that he has done. The very nature of our DNA is changed from slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. Now, when when Paul addresses the churches in the New Testament, what does he call them? They're saints. Now, nowadays, that term almost morphs into a Catholic connotation. You know, you have St. Paul, St. Peter, St. Francis, St. Michael, etc. We do not need the Vatican to affirm the reality that we have been made holy ones. This is already true of us. If you have placed faith in Christ, you have died to Adam and have been born to Christ. Your sin nature has been redeemed. However, this does not mean that we live in a flawless state. We as the church live in an inaugurated eschatology. We live in the already, but the not yet. We have been sanctified, and we will be sanctified. We have been resurrected, and we will be resurrected. We have been glorified, and we will be glorified. We already are, but we aren't yet. So if we have been made all of these things in the already, how do we live in the not yet? We've been made holy, yet we do not act holy. So live into the reality of your sainthood. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer articulates the antithesis of this as cheap grace. Just because we have been saved does not mean that we are free to live in any manner that we see fit. We see this theology play out in the early church as Gnosticism takes a hold. These individuals understood the depravity of their physical state, yet they threw the baby out with the bathwater as they lived however they pleased, thinking that the physical life did not matter. When Christ encounters an individual in the New Testament, he comes with love and repentance. True love requires that we call out for repentance. True repentance means that we live in the reality of biblical love. So early this year, we did a sermon on cultural creeds where we investigated the intersection between the creeds of the church and the creeds of the secular world. And with topics ranging from immigration to women's rights to same-sex marriage to Black Lives Matter and the rise of transgenderism, our response to these cultural issues lied within the confines of the gospel. We love each and every one of these individuals. We show them who Christ is, but our love is always supplemented with repentance. If there is injustice, we do not turn an eye. If there is blatant sin, we do not stand still. Jesus is not represented when we do not love others, but he is also not represented when we encourage others to live in their sinful patterns. We live into the reality of the centrality of the gospel. So how else does the centrality of the gospel impact us today? As a church in Parkwood or a future church in Bristol, this is the essence of our nature. We participate in back-to-school drives, ensuring that the less fortunate in our area are able to go to school with a backpack and a pencil. We volunteer at the Easter egg hunt, the trunk or treat, or any of the events that Liberty puts on so that the lost in our area can see that we care for them. 
We sacrifice our time at Grow ESL to participate in conversations with refugees who speak English as a second language in order that these individuals can thrive in America, obtaining jobs and providing for their family. We volunteer in Liberty Kids, Setup Team, Greeting, Worship, and all of the teams that make this Sunday possible. We go to church every Sunday, not just to live in community, but because we need to be reminded of the gospel every single week. We need to receive the gospel every single week through word and through sacrament. So that's what we do. We give the first fruits of our finances to the church so that functionally this gospel truth can be reminded to you weekly and the lives of those outside of this church. So if your, if your mentality is that you do not need to consistently be coming, that you can solely attend online, or that you do not need to give in service or financially, your view of the gospel is thwarted. Christ has ordained this as the place for him to be given to his people. Sunday is the sanctified day, the first day of the week that informs us how we need to live every other day. So physically come here, physically serve here, physically give here. But gospel centrality does not stop there. We love without sacrificing repentance. Works are never justified in themselves. So we meet our love with a call to repentance. We make sure that the people of Parkwood, the people in Bristol know that they are in a depraved state. They are slaves to sin. We tell them of the centrality of this book. We tell them about the truth of Jesus Christ. And when we are oppressed, when we do not see traction, when we do not see growth, or we feel like the walls of our lives are caving in, we function with the mentality that Job did as his family lay dead, his livestock was gone, his property was left to ruin, and his health was stricken. In chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, where Job still did not receive any answers or justification for all that he had lost, he replies, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Job's eyes were fixed on the resurrection and the restoration that was to come, not in his current moment, but at the end of times. Liberty Northeast, our Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth. Our flesh may be destroyed, but he will come, come again and resurrect us to our glorious state in which we were created for. As you live in the already but not yet, cling to your new identity in Christ. This reality requires that we walk in love and repentance. All of scripture is a testament to Jesus Christ. Whether it is an older testament to Christ or a newer testament to Christ, he is the essence. The gospel is the centrality of scripture, the centrality of the church. So preserve this gospel as a centrality when you read scripture. Preserve the gospel as a centrality of this corporate body and preserve the gospel as a centrality of your daily life. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your revelation through Holy Scripture and how through it 
the work and person of Christ is revealed to us, ushering in restoration and redemption. Lord, may your gospel truth that's seen through from Genesis to Revelation, may it transform us in this moment to be and to do. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We fix our eyes upon you. And it's in Christ we pray. Amen.